This morning, it is my privilege to kick off a, a 12-week series um, on the resurrection of Christ. I don't know if you've ever done it. In all my life as a Christian, I've never ever sat under or read or studied intensely just the impact of the resurrection of Christ and what it means to our faith in our daily lives. And so um, you're going to learn with me. We're going to be stretched together um, for 12 weeks. And today is a almost like a, just the foundations of the series from next weekend, we'll look at all the implications of the resurrection being true and, and so. But today we've called it a, a certain hope or a certain faith. And hope and faith in, in Scripture is interchangeable. In Hebrews 11, it speaks of faith is the, things, the essence of the things hoped for. And so if we, as a Christian, we should always be hoping. And as a Christ follower, we should always have faith. But, but the two are, in Scripture, interchangeable all the time. And Paul is writing, and we're going to go to a piece of passage now in Corinthians where Paul is writing to a very uncertain church, a church that is questioning the, the, the resurrection of Christ. It's, it's questioning, did this really happen? Is the gospel really true, etc.? I'm not sure how you have come through or how you're doing in the season of COVID and the pandemic. I'm sure many of us, if we had to be honest, there are certain things that we, we, we question whether we could trust those things or maybe some of us placed our hope in things that we've, we're now discovering we shouldn't maybe have placed all our hope in those, in those baskets, if it's if it, so to speak. And so Paul is now seeking to assure the church in Corinth around the hope in Christ. He's pointing to them, just as we're saying, please, he's begging, beseeching, place all your hope in Christ. The gospel, like Sia said earlier, is not wishful thinking. It's not pie in the sky, fairy tales. We're not talking about the tooth fairy here. This is uh, historical. And so this morning we're going to look at um, an historical reason for believing in the resurrection. We're going to look at reasonable reasoning. Just We're going to engage our heads this morning. Some of you are going, yay, my head's going to be engaged in church, not just my heart. And then at the end, we're going to engage our hearts around this. And so what I love about the gospel, what I love about Scripture, is it engages both our heads and our hearts. And so, so often we have questions. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you are sitting here this morning and there are certain aspects around the resurrection of Christ that you still, do we really believe that, like as Christians kind of thing? Or maybe you've grown up and you've grown up in church and you go, of course we all believe it. Um, uh, if you're in the camp of, of course we all believe it, I'm going to say to you, um, I don't, not everybody's in your camp. <laughs> there are many folk that are questioning and struggle with the resurrection of Christ, even Christ followers that are going, I believe everything, but do we really believe this happened? Maybe you just, like, no, you have never ever questioned it. Or maybe, and I can guarantee you, you have friends that do question whether that really happened. I have friends that question that this happened. I have qu friends that believe in a good Jesus and a nice Jesus and a, and a good teacher. But when it comes to the cross and the resurrection, they go, oh no, that's where you lose me. I'm not sure I can believe that aspect of your faith or what you speak of. But maybe this morning, and my hope is that as we read through Scripture, we're going to see Paul's defense of the gospel in some way. It will give you, as a Christ follower, maybe some tools and some answers for people that are questioning. I'm personally hoping and praying that every one of us have friends that do question the gospel. I hope that you have friends that don't know Jesus and that have questions that they'd like to be answered in the, in the Bible. If we're not doing it, then we, we literally are just becoming a little club of, of all that believe the same thing. But I'm praying that all of us will have lives with people, filled with people that don't have all the answers. And hopefully we can engage in some of those things. So let's go to Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read the first 11 verses. This is Paul's defense and reminder of the gospel. 
I'm amazed over Easter and over the last few weeks how often the word remember and remind, remember and remind is in Scripture. It's almost like it's a, you know when you often read your Bible in, in like a week or a month, one word keeps jumping out at you? The word remember seems to be in every text we choose over the last few while. Anyway, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, so he's speaking to Christ followers, Christians here, of the gospel I preached to you. It's amazing how Paul, Paul still feels it's necessary to preach the gospel and remind Christians of the gospel. We never ever get tired of hearing the gospel. If you're a Christ follower and you go, I've heard the gospel, can we move on to deeper things? I would say what Paul says, I want to remind you again of the first thing I preached at you, which you received in, in, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. I love the fact that the gospel is busy, being, is busy saving us. God's not finished with us yet. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Verse 3, we're in chapter 15 of Corinthians 1, if any of you are still looking. For I delivered you to this the first import, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture prophesied that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to Scripture. Paul is making it very, very clear to the church what we believe. This is what we stand for. And, he, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is here referring to his personal Damascus experience of Christ appearing to him. Verse 9. See what he's done here. He's, he's, he's told us why I believe that this is true. And then verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10. But the grace of God... But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Though it was not I, or my hard work, or my labor, but the grace of God that is with me. An amazing passage here. Paul is building a case for the gospel. Let's pray, and then we're going to break it up a bit for us today. Jesus, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we... We never grow tired of gospel reminders. Thank you that the gospel is continuing to do a work of salvation and, and sanctification in our lives. Thank you for your grace towards us. And I pray this morning that we would walk out of here with our chest high, pumped up, our chins high, certain in this, in this hope, the hope of the resurrection of Christ in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul does two things. First, he engages the mind. In the first nine verses, 10 verses, he's debating, saying, let me show you why you should believe that Christ really died, he really, and he was raised from the dead. And then he lists the witnesses, almost like a court case. We've watched lots of court cases in our country. We know how these things work these days. And then after engaging your mind and reasoning with you, he then almost changes gears in verse 10. And he goes, all this I've said, but the grace of God grabbed hold of me and showed me, and showed me the truth of the gospel. There's these two beautiful angles in a surety in the gospel that we, we see Paul do for us in this one text. So first of all, I said, our surety or the, our certain hope, or why can our hope in Christ and His resurrection be certain? Well, first of all, it's a historical hope. 
There's a history. This really happened. If we say history, we mean it really took place. There are records. There are witnesses. There's a timeline. There's a date. There's a, there's a, there's a time frame to these things. Jesus really did die on the cross. And you might be thinking, oh, no, are you really saying this at church? We, we're sitting here. We all believe it. There are many folk that will question these things, and we live in a time like that. The gospel begins with the reporting of certain historical facts. Paul is stating historical facts. He's not arguing or debating, saying this really happened. Christianity is rightly seen as a life-changing experience, something that each one of us get to experience. But it will transform you only if you accept the facts that certain events happen in history. Christianity only changes me if I believe that certain things happened and that God did certain things. In the early part of the 19th century, there was a movement to remove the supernatural elements from our, our faith, or from Christianity. They wanted to, in essence, liberate Christianity from the supernatural. They wanted to, they be, people became too clever. They, they, they became too philosophical and, re, and reasoned out the supernatural. And I call them the terrible twins. They're two, two main um, philosophers and teachers in the day. Uh, we talk about 200 years ago now. And this is what they, the one is Friedrich Schleimacher. Um, you don't have to pronounce that word and name ever again. But Friedrich Schleimacher taught that Christianity was not a matter of faith in historical evidence, but rather an internal feeling of dependence upon God. See what they're doing here. So you can, Christianity is all about the experience, but the stuff that you really believe didn't, didn't have to really happen for you to be a Christian. This is what they were trying to push 200 years ago. Does it sound familiar to some conversations you're having even today with people? And then Albrecht Rischel, also he's a Handlanger kind of guy, taught that we would no longer believe in miracles, and so we, do, do, we had to reread reports of Jesus' incarnate birth, his death and resurrection, not as historical events, but as legends and parables and examples of how to live. See what they're doing. This didn't really happen. This is a legend. This is like Robin Hood and, and, the, and Prince, of the, Prince of Thieves and those kind of legends that grew and grew over time. They, were, they, they took away the historical significance and reality of what happened in our faith. The basic reasoning of this movement went like this. And, and I know it's a bit philosophical, but it's, it's worth just engaging a bit. There are many superstitious, miraculous elements in the Christian faith. Modern people can't surely believe that those things actually happened. So if you're going to appeal to the modern world, to the people that are clever now and enlightened, we will have to reinterpret these fictions that we believe, but fiction that preserves the essential principles of living as a Christian. So let's get away with all the, the stuff that people struggle to believe in, like the death of Christ, like the resurrection, like the miraculous things that happen, like crossing the Red Sea, etc., etc. Let's remove these things from our faith, and then maybe people would believe and become better Christians because of that. What do they do with Easter? They say, well, Easter is what, what, what these guys would do with Easter that we just celebrated. We say, Easter is like seasons. After winter comes, spring. After spring comes, summer. So after the, 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 the winter of Christ's death, it's natural for us as human beings to expect spring to, part, to come and things to get better. Isn't that something that we all go, are we having a bad day and what do we, we, we so easily say to people, don't worry, it's going to get better. Why do we say that? Because as human beings, we've seen seasons in lives change. We, we've seen lives that, always, that don't always stay in winter. We know that there's a, even 
night comes, then what do we go? But the sun will rise in the morning. It's going to change. It's going to get better. So they're saying, even as human beings, we know that things don't always stay. We knew that Jesus' death on the cross wouldn't always stay there. That's why we believe in the resurrection, because things have to get better. Can you see this, this thinking in modern-day society? A Christianity, but don't try and tell me that the miracles... I've had that said to me. Honor, you're, a, you're an intelligent, thinking guy. Don't, do you really believe the stuff that... The miracles, the water into wine. Do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that the guy they crucified rose from the dead? Do you honestly believe these things? See, liberal Christianity, 200 years old, but it's influenced our lives today, has taught that it doesn't matter whether all these events in the story of Jesus' life actually happened. What actually just matters is that Christians are good, ethical people who love making other people's worlds better. Can you see that? Have you heard that? I've heard friends say that. Isn't, isn't, aren't Christians just meant to be nicest, the best people, the kindest people? But when you start saying, no, 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 we believe in the resurrection. No, we believe that, he, that we're sinners and we de- deserve to die, that we, that we needed salvation. They go, well, now you're losing us. That's what happens in our world. That's the world you and I live in. That's the world our friends that don't know Christ live in. And our Christian message is unique in the way that because of what God does, we get to live a certain way. And I'm very grateful to, to Richard Neuber. And he, he mocks these philosophers. He's, he's one of their contemporaries. And he says this. He describes liberalism as this. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the, minister, through the ministration of Christ without a cross. He's saying the liberals actually don't want the gospel. The liberals, even in the church, that were, were trying to ignore historical facts, ignore the supernatural, ignore the resurrection, Literally, they wanted a God without wrath, man without sin, a kingdom without a judge, and the ministry of Christ without the cross. Tell us about Jesus, but don't tell us about Jesus and the cross. Tell us about how how good God is. Don't tell us that God has got wrath towards sin and sinful man. Tell us that there's a kingdom, but don't don't give us a king that tells us how to live our lives. Hey, can you? We can see that. We can hear that. We hear that often, don't we? And you think. We, we often as elders will talk about church and life and what's happening. And you see some of these thinkings infiltrate even our members in the church. Why does the church want a kingdom but they don't want kings? Why does the church want a God of mercy and grace but no wrath and justice? Why does the church want Jesus and the nice Jesus but we struggle to celebrate his death on the cross or his resurrection? Because Jesus' death for our sin and resurrection happened in history. Everything else from then on changes. Because of the resurrection, everything and every claim that Christ and the prophets have made is now fact and real. We can't argue. We can't skimp away from it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, later Paul says this, If Christ was not raised, our preaching is useless. <laughs> the Greek word for that useless is powerless. Paul is literally saying, if Christ did not raise on the third day, we would never and should never preach, and no preaching will ever have any power, any significance. But because he raised from the dead, everything changes. Because Christ rose on the third day, everything changes in history. History changes. Our lives change. You and I change. And then we look at the resurrection and our certain hope, or a certain hope we go, and we go, it's a reasonable hope. It's reasonable to believe in the resurrection. And Paul is debating and helping the church engage again with their reason. And 1 Corinthians 15, if you read it, 
is brimming through reasons to believe. He's again engaging the church and saying, I want to convince you to believe in Christ. I don't want you to be um, one day believing, the next day not believing, this day I'm sure, this day I'm not sure. COVID comes, I'm not sure of Christ. Is Christ still with me? Is he? No, no, Christ, Paul is trying to assure them, and he's trying to give them reasons. And there are many theories, and I'm just going to go through three of the modern theories that Paul is trying to do away with in this one passage. The first theory is, one of the oldest theories, is that the legend of Jesus' resurrection developed only many decades after the actual events had faded into living memory. So just like we went fishing, and Pete and, and Arno went fishing at the Transcar, and in one morning we caught 11 fish. It was like the best fishing session in five years that we've ever had. You ask us five years from now how many fish we caught and how big the fish were. What happens? No, we caught 20 fish, and they were all big fish, and we had to carry bags full of fish home. Legends, we know, legends develop over time. So one of the theories and one of the criticisms against the resurrection is saying, Ha, oh, you Christians, over time, as time went, this legend grew of Jesus rising from the dead. He's no longer dead. He's now in heaven. But that developed over decades like a good fishing story or like any other legend that we know of will grow. But here's the interesting thing, that the majority of New Testament scholars, the guys that studied New Testament history, will agree that Paul wrote this passage. The first, from verse 3 to 7, Paul wrote like three or four months, literally months after the resurrection. This wasn't decades later. This was months later. This was happening as he spoke. It disproves the theory that Jesus' resurrection was a legend developed only by people who were present at his death, and now he's gone. Now we need to come up with an answer. Instead, the text here demonstrates to us almost instantly thousands of Jews in Acts. It says, so those who received his word were baptized, and they were added about 3,000 souls. Literally on the back of the resurrection and the power of what happened, Jews, 3,000 of them in one day got saved. Something miraculously happened. Unlike the Romans, because the Romans believed in this, but the Jews did not believe that a, ma a man can become God, let alone stupefy himself to become a man, a God becoming man. And never would they ever see, or they would see it as blasphemy and madness to say that a man could be raised from the dead. So this wasn't a popular thing. In those days, it wasn't a popular thing to believe that people were raised from the dead. Even the false religions of the day, no one would dare claim that someone could raise someone from the dead in these days. Because as soon as you claimed it, people would go to you and say, you're stupid, you've lost it, okay, now we, need, now we know you, you're hoaxing or you, you're fooling us. So no one would even claim this. What we see is unprecedented. The second reason that we have, and that all theory against the resurrection is that the earliest followers of Jesus did not literally see the resurrected Christ with their own eyes, but only experienced it, continued presence in their hearts. So no one really saw Jesus, all these witnesses, they just experienced Jesus. Can you see how that can infiltrate Christianity? If I say to you, all that Christianity is just experience, just as long as you can feel and experience Jesus, you don't really have to see God do and intervene in your life. We don't believe that. We still believe that God can supernaturally intervene in our lives and God can do miracles amongst us. We, we hold to that. We believe this is an experience, but there is a God that does things, that intervenes, that steps in. Paul is saying to them, on the third day, 
He's building his case here. He's saying there's, this, there's a specific time here. Jesus' resurrection was an actual event with a time stamp on it. This is not after a few days. This is not after some days. No, this is after the third day. As prophesied, this happened. Again, Paul is trying to help the church here. Forget what people are saying, the naysayers are saying about this. And then he lists, goes to length. This is the only passage or the passage where Paul literally um, lists all the, the witnesses. Cephas, Peter, and the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the, and sisters at the same time. Most of them were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Do you know that many of the early martyrs in the church, in the early, early church, I'm talking months after Christ, they died for their belief in the resurrection? Part of the reason that they were martyred is that they would not let go of their, their, their belief that Christ was raised from the dead. And when the authorities tried to persuade them, otherwise they would not. They would rather die than say, he did not raise from the dead. Now, if, you, if you're doing, if, if, if this is a hoax, if this is a prank, or this is a, whatever you're calling it, it's not, it's not going to be a great motivation to lay your life down for. But you lay your life down for the truth and for something that is real. And then he mentions James and the apostles. And then he's so excited about all these witnesses that Paul says, even me, that didn't physically witness him, I experienced him. On the road of Damascus, I saw Christ. So he even brings his own personal testimony into the his, historic testimony and eyewitness of this. And then the last challenge that, he's, that he speaks to here is that the list of uh, challenges, the third one, is that the resurrection was a hoax. It was one big hoax or prank or it was, they were trying to build something towards um, or fake it that Jesus was. They, they invested so much in Christ that they, they faked his resurrection. The only problem is not only that Peter, Jesus' brother, James, and Paul himself all claimed to have literally seen Christ back from the dead. Jesus also appeared to over 500 witnesses in one time. So you go, if it was a hoax, why did 500 people, why would they see these things? 75% of the words of this gospel presentation. Some of you right now are going, oh no, I did not come to church for a lecture on was the resurrection right? The issue then I would say to you is, Paul is doing a gospel representation here, and Paul spends 75% of his time listing eyewitnesses. 75% of this gospel presentation is him telling you who saw Christ raised from the dead. Paul is fighting for a certainty in this hope. He's trying to say to the church in Corinth, hey, this really happened. Just like I would say to us in this room, hey, Christians, hey, folk, visitors, this really happened. This is not, this is historic. This is reasonable to believe this. Listen to Acts um, 26, verse 24 to 29. This is Paul um, in front of Festus, um, the, the emperor or the, the guy challenging Paul. And he was saying these things in his defense. And Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He's literally calling Paul mad for believing in the resurrection. Paul said this to him. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and, and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I will boldly speak, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. This resurrection did not happen somewhere privately in a corner. The stone was rolled away publicly. It was shown to 500. This, is the, this is, was not hidden. King Agrippa do you believe these prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, 
whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for, the, for these chains. Paul is saying to them, he's fighting and he's standing and he's in chains because of the gospel. And he's fighting, he's saying, King Agrippa, I don't only want you to get saved. I want everybody that listened to me or hears my defense of the gospel to get saved, except for being in chains, of course, like I am. He's quite sarcastic at the end there because he's obviously in chains speaking to them. So the two main or the four main arguments that Paul has around how do we be certain, how do we rationalize or how do we help people with the certainty of the gospel. In Paul's reasonable, he says, first of all, the tomb is empty. Go look, go to the tomb, it's empty. Secondly, the amount of witnesses. Look at the, just the sheer amount of people that saw Christ living after his resurrection and raised from the dead. And then the gospel provides us with reasons three and four. Three, the strangeness of the resurrection. This is not normal. It was a, it was a weird occasion. It wasn't a, a, a normal um, conjured up run-of-the-mill resurrection. No, it was strange. It was strange to everybody around. This was not happening every day of the week. And fourthly, the inexpressible of the early church resurrection and faith, or the, the early church's resurrection faith. We can't explain why the early church. Something radical must have happened, real must have happened, for the early church to have such a radical faith and such a strong belief in the resurrection that they were happy to be fed to lions, they were happy to see their family sacrificed, their own lives taken from them, but not give in on the resurrection and standing on the, re the resurrection of Christ as historical and factual and true. Something must have happened for that to happen. N.T. Wright says it like this, one of the, the New Testament scholars. The early, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings of sightings of, of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. I think we forget that. Because we know in history what happened, we think everybody around was expecting Christ to be raised from the dead and was hanging around the tomb on the third day that Christ would walk out. No one was there. No one, there wasn't a crowd waiting outside the tomb, for, waiting for Jesus. Everybody expected that was it. He is dead. He's not coming back. Even his disciples, the scripture says scattered. The only people that saw and discovered the tomb empty were the two ladies who were there to go bomb and anoint his body, his dead body, his corpse. And by chance they discovered that the tomb is empty. But no one was expecting this. That, I don't know what that does to you. It shocks me when I read that. We assume that the disciples, if that happened today, surely some of us at least would expect it to come true. After all the prophecy, after everything Christ told the disciples, after spending years with his disciples, he dies on the cross and no one's hanging around on day three at the tomb waiting for him to be raised from the dead. Hopeless. Completely hopeless. Christ is dead. He's gone. He's not coming back. So N.T. Wright reminds, nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it. No matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt. No matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. To suggest that this was a hoax, suggest that people conjured up the resurrection of Christ, says that's more fantasy than it is We've got more history that proves that it actually happened if we look at all the, the backdrop and the noise behind this. So we have a, a hope in Jesus is not 
get yourself psyched up, get yourself feeling hopeful. Let's, I don't know, um, get your faith levels up. Come on, guys, let's sing more songs. Let's have more faith. It's not a, it's not a purely emotional, yes, there is experiential faith and, and emotion in it, but it's not purely. There's also, we can also engage our heads as Christians around this. And we can reason with our friends that don't believe, that we can have reasons why we believe in the resurrection, that it is certain, that our, that our hope in the resurrection is certain. There's historical evidence that, that Christ raised from the dead. And that should be enough, shouldn't it? When I prepared this, this, this preach, I was going, so if I prepare and, and I can convince you historically and reasonably that Christ raised from the dead, will you believe in Christ? What's the answer? You and I know the answer. We would think automatically, surely if you knew he died, surely if you knew he rose from the dead, the automatic answer should be, of course you'll believe. No. Still not enough. Still not enough. I have friends who will, will say to me, historically, if we were to go through this conversation, we'll say, I agree, I can't argue that it happened. And I'll say, okay, so do you believe then that if these things are true, then Christ must be true, and His call and claim on your life must be true. Do you believe, and will you submit to Christ as Lord? And he goes, no. Something else has to happen, other than our heads being one, other than all our excuses being taken away. Something else has to happen. And Paul ends this chunk of Scripture with those verses and those, those words. So while Paul has emphasized the historical and the rational side of Christianity, he does not mean that it is sufficient to merely give mental assent, assent to the doctrines of these principles. We must appropriate these truths to us personally and with faith. I can hear these things, I can agree with you, but if I can't apply them personally and add faith and, and by God's grace faith to this, I will not believe these things and I won't apply the gospel to my own life. Belief or non-belief in the resurrection is never merely an intellectual process. I love apologetics. We have phenomenal um, apologists for our faith in this world. And I've seen many debates where they will debate with people that don't believe in the gospel. And they'll debate and debate. And eventually, the people that are debating will, will concede, yes, you've got a point. Yes, you're right. Does it mean that they convert to Christ or to Christianity? Not a chance. Something else has to happen other than just intellectual reasoning and arguing. I read somewhere that someone said, you're not going to argue anybody into the kingdom of Christ. You're never going to argue someone into, into God's family. You're never going to, by winning arguments, winning people to Christ. There's some truth in that. See, we're not computers. We're flesh and blood. We're human beings. And when we confront claims of the resurrection, we address it not only logic, but we also in our hearts. Something has to happen in our hearts. That is why immediately after the summary of this doctrine in 1 Corinthians 15, and this passage for just for your to take home is most probably, if someone says explain the, a gospel defense in Scripture, this is the passage. If you want to know Paul's doctrine on the gospel or Christianity, why is it true? This is the cornerstone in our faith that we hold to. We would read sentence by sentence as our belief in the, in the gospel and the resurrection of Christ. But he ends with a personal testimony. And what has made Paul completely different as a person? Three times in two verses he mentions the word, actually in one verse, he mentions the word grace, 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 grace. 
for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted, I Paul persecuted the church of God, the very church that I'm now writing to and I'm encouraging in the gospel. I persecuted you. But, again, that word but, that cancels everything ahead of it. <laughs> but by the grace of God, I am an apostle. I am what I am. I am, you are, and an, uh, if you're a Christ follower this morning, you are a Christ follower, but by the grace of God. Because God's grace grabbed hold of you. You're not a Christ follower. None of us in this room are Christ followers because we made an intellectual decision to follow Jesus. You are not. If you think you are because you made the right decision, it was the grace of God that opened your eyes and allowed you to make that call. Nothing else. And that faith that you got to say yes to Jesus, even that faith in Scripture says that faith was a gift from God. You didn't even have that faith. It was a gift. Paul says in Romans 6, he says, um, salvation is a free gift from God. He's gifted us this. Paul knows this. He says it. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Just pause for a second in your own life this morning. Just think of where you are right now. Think of where you are right now, who you are right now. You are who you are, where you are right now in life, where you are right now, who you are right now by the grace of God. What God's called you to, what God's giving you to do, the task that God's given to you, these things aren't by our decisions and by our wiseness or our cleverness. It's by His grace that we are what we are. Honor, honor is a pastor by the grace of God. I'm not here because of any special things I have or decisions I've made or decisions man's made. I'm here by the grace of God. And then he says this, um, and His grace toward me was not in vain. He's saying, I'm not going to waste the grace of God on my life. God's God didn't, God didn't waste His grace upon me. I'm going to do something with His grace. This, this salvation that He's given me, this salvation that He's gifted me, I'm not going to waste it. It's not in vain. And this is, on the contrary, because of this grace, I work harder than any of them. <laughs> it's amazing how the grace of God causes a working out of our faith. Uh, I'm up for this. Take everything. I'm going to give my everything to this. Paul's response to grace was not, hey, where's the closest remote and couch? Let me just hang and chill and enjoy this good life that Jesus promised me. Paul's response to grace is, I don't want to waste the grace of God in my life. What can I do? I'm going to work my behind off with this grace that God's given me. I'm going to work and I'm going to serve the gospel with everything I can because of this grace. I'm not going to, it is not going to be in vain in my life. I've, on the contrary, I've worked harder than any of them. And then he says this, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Three times in one passage. It's almost like Paul speaking to someone that doesn't want to hear. And he says, it's the grace of God that I am what I am. Because of this grace, I work hard. And hey, and it's, not, it's not because of me. It's, again, it's the grace of God. He's almost afraid that the church doesn't realize that it's the grace of God that they require. More than reason, more than intellect. More than debates, what we need is the grace of God to intervene in our lives. And once the grace of God grabs hold of our lives, we will change forever. So when we pray for our friends that don't know Christ, we can, re we can reason. And may maybe some of you have taken notes and you're going, ha, ah, 
I can answer some questions. Oh, now I know where the philosophy comes from, where they're removing the supernatural from our faith. I get where that, where that thinking comes from. But after all the debating and conversations, can I encourage you? The big prayer that we're praying for our friends who don't know Christ is that God would open their eyes supernaturally, that God by His grace would intervene in their lives. Because you and I are sitting here and worshiping today purely because of the grace of God shown to you and to me. None of us are here because we're clever. None of us are here because we're more humble than the person that doesn't decide to believe. None of us are here because, oh, geez, I'm just a, I'll just follow the crowd. <laughs> no, you're here because of the grace of God towards you. And that grace fuels us to give everything we have towards the gospel and towards others. Because we don't want to waste this grace. We're not the conduit. We're not, the grace doesn't end in my life. It, it's here for me, for others. The grace that God shows me is for me, and it says that you would love one another, that we would love each other in this grace. Paul, like the rest of us, was just as spiritually blind to the nature of salvation. He thought that he could save himself, and he did that. He studied, he trained himself, he debated, and that he could make God bless him because he was so zealous, but he realized, actually, God blesses me out of his grace, not because of how hard I work. God blesses me out of His grace towards me, not because I get all the answers right most of the time. And he thought that Jesus, and this is the thing I think that got Paul, is yes, Jesus, an uneducated, homeless, unemployed carpenter who died a cursed criminal's death could not possibly have been a savior. It doesn't make sense after years of debating and reasoning, after proving historical facts, reasoning with us, Paul still says, it's by grace that you, dis- that you follow. And listen to his description of, of Jesus in Paul's time. Now, Paul was an intellectual. He was upper class. He was, he was, he was the boy, Ivy League kind of guy. And yet comes Jesus, uneducated, homeless, unemployed carpenter, who died a, cruce, a cursed criminal's death. And Paul could not see and would not see this Christ as Savior, but the grace of God that opened his eyes and said, that is Jesus. You are the Lord, and he bowed his knees before Christ. You and I don't bow our knees before intellect and before arguments. We bow our knees before the grace of God. It is the grace of God that causes us to bow our knees and say, you are Lord, not me. I am a sinner. I am in desperate need of salvation. That's what causes us to even cry out to Him. We're going to pray and we're going to have communion together. Jonah, can you...